I have to confess that I feel a little bit of conflict this morning, a little bit of tension. It's a strange thing to be asked to preach about a God who you no longer believe in. I'm not sure I ever actually believed in this God. There was a time, I suppose, where I might have gone along with the worship of this God just because so many around me had become devoted followers. Like so many gods, it's a God who seems easy to believe in. Believing in this God seems natural, maybe even desirable. But desiring something to be true is not the same thing as something actually being true. There was always a part of me that was suspicious about this God. If this God did exist, it was certainly a twisted, capricious God. It was a God who seemed to consume all of those devoted to it. Now, I've heard all the arguments. I've heard all of the apologetics. But I'm here to confess this morning that as I've grown older, I've grown into a skeptic and an unbeliever. Oh, it's not, it's not popular to say. In fact, it would make some people positively hostile. When you reject the popular worship of a culture, it tends to get people upset. But I've deconstructed faith in this God, and I've found it to be completely empty. And so it is today that I've been asked to preach on the topic of sexual identity, a God that I don't believe in. It's not that I don't believe in sex. I do believe in sex. It's not that I don't believe in sexual attraction or even what we might call sexual orientation. I do believe in that. What I don't believe in and what I reject is the centering of identity, the grounding of our sense of self in sex or sexuality. Because whatever we center ourselves on, whatever we use to define our identity, whatever we use to define who we are, that thing is a God. And in this case, that thing is a false God. Now, as I was writing the sermon, I knew that I would have to do a little bit of research. I, need, I knew I needed to, to discover some things about this God. So like Paul, preparing himself, himself to speak at the Areopagus, walking through the streets of Athens, I went to our modern-day Agora. I went to Wikipedia. Um, I learned that from my students. Um, <laughs> here's what Wikipedia says. Sexual identity is how one thinks of oneself in terms of uh, to whom one is romantically or sexually attracted. Sexual identity is how one thinks of oneself in terms of to whom one is romantically or sexually attracted. So sexual identity is not merely about attraction. Sexual identity is also about, fundamentally, it's about how a person thinks about themselves. Sex is so important that who we are is governed by who we are or who we are not attracted to. 
And the next paragraph actually makes this clear. It says, sexual identity has been described as a component of an individual's identity that reflects their sexual self-concept. Now, to their credit, Wikipedia seems to recognize that sexuality alone might not be enough for us to shape our identity. The very next sentence, it says, the integration of the respective identity components into a greater overall identity is essential to the process of developing the multidimensional construct of identity. I know that's a, a mouthful. But basically, they're saying there's a lot of things that go into structuring who we are. There's a lot of things that go into informing our sense of self, forming our sense of identity. Sex is one of those things. Now, here's the problem that I have, though. All of those other components that might feed into shaping who we are, shaping our identity, things like religious commitments, things like even family or ethnic identity, all these other components that might inform us and shape who we are and how we know ourselves, all of those other things have faded into the background in light of, in light of, the, the, the sheer size and power of sexual identity in our culture. My next stop was uh, I went to a website that was devoted to educating the public about all of the options that a person has in regards to sexual identity. And they listed on this website nearly 40 options, including... Allosexual, androsexual, asexual, aromantic, autosexual, autoromantic, bicurious, bisexual, biromantic, closeted, cupiosexual, demisexual, demiromantic, fluid, gay, graysexual, gray romantic, gynosexual, heterosexual, homosexual, lesbian, libido asexual, monosexual, no libidoist asexual, omnisexual, pansexual, panromantic, polysexual, pomosexual, queer, questioning, sapiosexual, sex averse, sex favorable, sex indifferent, sex repulsed, scoliosexual, spectrosexual, and straight. Now, I, please, I don't want to be misunderstood this morning. I don't read that list in order to mock or make fun of anyone. I really don't. That's not my point. I read this list to illustrate two things. First of all, we are obsessed with, and second of all, we are confused by sexual identity. The multiplication of terms is usually a sign of confusion rather than precision. And apparently this is a God who is equally consuming and also confusing. So how did we get to this point? Where did this God come from? Well, I just want to talk about, really quick, I want to talk about three priests of sexual identity. Three priests. I'm going to put on my philosophy professor's hat for just a moment, if you'll permit me. The first priest that I want to talk about is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau was an 18th century French philosopher. And his most famous quote was that man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Central to Rousseau's philosophy is the assumption that man is born good, but then is corrupted by culture. Man is born good, but then is corrupted by society. Specifically, our most authentic self is constricted by the rules of society. Society, according to Rousseau, forces us to live a lie. And so romantics like Rousseau turned 
being your most authentic self into a virtue. We don't look outside. If you want to shape your identity, according to Rousseau, if you want to know who you really are, you don't look outside of yourself. You don't look at tradition. You don't look at religious belief. You don't look at the rules of society. You don't look at your family. You don't look at any of those things. If you really want to know who you are, according to Rousseau, the only way to really know who you are is to look within. That's the only way that you can have a true identity, an authentic identity, is to look within. The most authentic person is the countercultural individual. Rousseau is the patron saint of little girls who grew up belting, let it go, and thought it was just about a young queen's tolerance for the cold. Rousseau is the patron saint of little boys who grew up choosing Iron Man over Captain America because Iron Man was the sarcastic rebel who broke all the rules. Under the romantics, sex is merely an expression of who we are authentically on the inside. Sex isn't just an act. Sex is an expression of us as individuals. And the more societal norms you break with your sexual expression, the more authentic you are. And this has led to profound confusion about the purpose of sex. I stumbled across um, this past week, I stumbled across the San Francisco Department of Public Health guidance for safe sex during the age of COVID which is kind of interesting. Here's one paragraph in that guide on how to have safe sex during COVID. The challenge of safer sex in COVID-19 is making changes work for you and your sex life. A big part of figuring that out is learning what you want out of sex. Is it about getting off? Is it the touch? Is it the need for intimacy and emotional connection? Is it all of those things? Staying safe with COVID-19 may mean learning more about yourself and what you need most out of sex and how to communicate your needs and fears with current and potential partners. Notice the assumption. The assumption is that society doesn't get to decide what sex is for. No one gets to decide what sex is for except for you. What's important is that you get what you need out of sex. For the romantic, for the disciple of Rousseau, sex becomes terribly lonely because it's just about you. Matter of fact, if you, if you read on in those same guidance, they recommend... Um, if you're going to have sex during the age of COVID, make sure that you're wearing a mask and no kissing is involved. Um, but the safest way to have sex during the era of COVID is virtual sex, which makes sense because if sex is ultimately only about you, it might as well be masturbatory. According to the romantic ideal, sex is merely an expression of what I want on the inside, nothing more. The second priest of sexual identity is Sigmund Freud. You know Freud's name. 19th century psychologist. Um, and I lost my place. <laughs> 19th century psychologist. So Freud and Rousseau, um, they agreed fundamentally 
that happiness was the most important thing about human existence. But Freud associated happiness primarily with sexual fulfillment. So here's, here's what Freud said. Man's discovery that sexual love afforded him the strongest experiences of satisfaction and in fact provided him with the prototype of all happiness must have suggested to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations and that he should make genital eroticism the central point of his life. For Freud, sex is not merely expressive, sex is meaningful going all the way back to infancy, from the moment that you're born, the purpose of your life is to find happiness in sexual satisfaction. The psychology of Freud produces movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin. The only reason why a movie like that works is because the very notion of being a 40-year-old virgin is patently absurd in our culture. There's no virtue in being celibate. There's no virtue in being a 40-year-old virgin. If you haven't had sex, and if you aren't having sex as much as possible, you are not living a fulfilled, meaningful life. That's Freud. Freud puts sex at the center of what counts as meaning in our lives. It's impossible to be happy. It's impossible to be fulfilled. It's impossible to have purpose without sex. The third priest is Karl Marx. Now, Marx lived about the same time as Freud. Marx believed that, Marx believed that all life was political. All social interactions are about this ongoing conflict between the haves and the have-nots. And history is moving inevitably in this direction of liberation. So for Marx, everything was political. Now, Marx was more interested in economics than he was interested in sex, but his followers in the 20th century applied his theories to sex. Economic categories of oppression and liberation became sexual categories of oppression and liberation. Freud said that everything in life is about sex. Marx said that everything in life is about politics. When you combine the two together, what you get is sex is now political. Sex isn't just about expression. It's not just about meaning. Sex is now about liberation and power. My sexuality is my public and my private identity, and society should be structured in such a way as to encourage as much sexual liberation as possible. The result is that sex is no longer a private affair. You know, the motto used to be that it's no one's business what happens in the privacy of someone else's bedroom. That motto is now very much out of date. Not only must you care about what happens in the privacy of someone else's bedroom, now you must endorse it and support it. Because my sexuality is not just my behavior. It's not just something that I do. It's now who I am. It is my identity. And to question my identity is to question my personhood. My life is now hidden in my sexuality and it's not I who live, but my sexual appetites that live in me. These ideas have become so ingrained within our culture that it's easy to assume this is how everyone has always thought about sex when it's not really true at all. Some of you, even in this room this morning, might 
might have just the twinge of, of uncomfortable right, uncomfortableness right now, if I could use that term, because this worldview has become so ingrained, not just in the world, but even in the church. These, these ideas have become conventional even among followers of Jesus, and it's become difficult at times to know where the kingdom of this world ends and the kingdom of heaven begins. So many of us are confused, I think, about the purpose of sex. And when you're confused about the purpose of something, you are much more likely to misuse it. Now, when you look at scripture, you can identify a few different purposes for sex. One purpose is enjoyment. I mean, have you read Song of Solomon? I mean, say what you want about Song of Solomon. They were having a good time, okay? So one purpose is enjoyment. But here's the thing. There's a lot of things that we could do in this life that bring us enjoyment. That can't be the central main purpose of sex. And in fact, in Scripture, it's not. The main purpose of sex in Scripture seems to be creation, The creation of a new being in marriage and the creation of a new life in children. And because of its role in creation, sex is regarded as a sacred thing. And sacred things are given limits. Sacred things are given protections. Things that are sacred are worth protecting because they are so precious. And also because they are so powerful. I protect my three kids. I protect them. I set rules for them. Not because I'm harsh, not because I'm mean, but because they are precious to me. Because they are so valuable to me. Things that are precious, things that are valuable, things that are sacred, they have protections to them. Rules that govern them. And we observe that when sacred things are treated like common things, they actually have the ability, rather than to bring life, they actually have the ability to bring death. Rather than, rather than bringing us uh, uh, healing, they bring destruction. And we see this, we see this with sex. Nowhere in scripture will you find anything about sex being the meaning of life. Nowhere in scripture will you find anything about what we call sexual identity. What modern people have done is they've stripped away everything that is sacred about sex and they've made it into a common thing. It's removed from selflessness, it's removed from commitment, it's removed from procreation. It's just about now the fulfillment of my appetites without any rules, without any restrictions, without any ambitions. That's all it is. And then we take that thing that we've emptied of its sacredness. We take that thing and we place it at the very center of our identity. We take that thing that we've emptied and we make that the sum total of who we are. And we wonder why it's made us miserable. We wonder why it's made us so lonely. It's because we've taken emptiness and we've constructed our entire lives around that thing. We've come to worship a meaningless God, and in the process, we ourselves have become meaningless as a result. Now, the chapel team asked me for my text a couple weeks ago. That's always a hilarious thing when, uh, you know, you're two weeks out from delivering your sermon. Hey, what's your text and your dominant thought? I don't know. I'll tell you the night before. Um, No, they asked me for my text, the text that I was going to be preaching on. And I I confess I had a hard time. You might have noticed at this point, I haven't read any scripture yet. Um, Christopher Ewan, 
is a name that some of you might know. Christopher Ewan says the terms uh, heterosexual and homosexual originate from a secular anthropology that elevates sexual desires as a legitimate way to categorize humanity. Are we in fact defined by our sexual desires and behaviors? The Bible does not categorize humanity according to our sexual desires or any other sort of desire. So what Christopher Ewan is saying is that this is, an, this is a category that really doesn't exist in the Bible. Now, Christopher Ewan is a man um, who has one of the most remarkable testimonies that I've ever heard. He was um, an agnostic gay man who ended up in prison for selling drugs. And, um, and in prison, Jesus got hold of his life in a powerful, dramatic way. Um, if you have the ability to, to, to watch a YouTube video or to check out his testimony, I strongly encourage it. It, it is just amazing. But God got a hold of him while he was in prison, and now he teaches theology at Moody, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Um, but he no longer identifies as either gay or straight. He rejects both labels. Because his conviction is that our true identity, if you're a follower of Jesus, your true identity is in Christ. Your true identity isn't moderated by some sort of sexual identity or, or anything like that. So in his most recent book, here's what he says. He says, there is no other sin issue so closely linked to identity. For example, being a gossiper is not who he, ha who he is, but what he does. Or being an adulteress is not who she is, but what she does. Being a hater is not who he is, but what he does. Should the capacity for same-sex attractions really describe who I am at my most basic level? Or should it describe how I am? Might this be a categorical fallacy that ultimately distorts how we think and live? The terms heterosexual and homosexual turn desire into personhood, experience into ontology. Now, I really wanted to resist turning this message into a sermon about homosexuality or same-sex attraction. Not that those aren't important issues, but I think that it lets too many of us off the hook. None of us in this room is exempt from reflecting on the extent to which sexual identity has become our center. None of us. None of us is exempt from reflecting on how sexual identity has become for us a seductive God. The properly ordered life is not centered on sex, but is centered on Jesus. The properly ordered life is not subject to sexual appetites, but is in submission to our Lord. And so I think I'm finally ready to read my text. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, age, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 